I want to begin the talk this evening with a little bit of chanting. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to try to make you chant. Uh, and the sheets that I put out are just for uh, those of you who might be interested in having a copy of the Metta Sutta. We don't really need it uh, this evening, although you might have occasion to look at it sometime during the talk. And I realize it's a little risky deciding to chant. Uh, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but nothing is everybody's cup of tea. And it's fairly short, so I think you'll be able to take it. And I think it's, um, <laughs> I think it can really be good to hear the, the Buddha's teachings in the original language, in the Pali language. Uh, it helps, at least for me, it helps to connect to this lineage that we're part of. And we don't have to think of ourselves as Buddhist to connect with this lineage down through the years. And the teachings were preserved as an oral tradition for a long time after the Buddha's life, several hundred years. Uh, they were preserved by people who memorized the teachings, usually in the form of some kind of chanting. And so we're indebted to those who, who learned the suttas and the teachings in that way. And preserve them before they were written down. So the chant that I'm going to do is, is the Karaniya Metta Sutta, for those of you who picked up one of the sheets. It's usually translated as the discourse on loving kindness, which should be done or which should be practiced. And it's really one of the most beloved chants uh, and suttas in the Theravada Buddhist world. It's probably been chanted daily somewhere in the world uh, every day since the time of the Buddha, uh, more than 2,500 years now. And the style that I'm chanting, the way that I'm chanting it, I learned from a man named Dhamma Ruan. He's a Sri Lankan man. He's a meditation teacher, a lovely being. Some of you might have met him. He's been here and helped with this retreat, uh, not for a few years, but he's been around here at IMS at times. And it's uh, when he was young, uh, just two or three, just really learning to talk, he spontaneously began chanting this Metta Sutta and a number of other uh, suttas. And he, he was chanting this one in particular in a very, people said, was a very ancient uh, kind of way that not really many people knew anymore. So you can make what you like of that, but it does point to some interesting possibilities. Um, and before I do the metta chant, I'm going to do a short uh, chant that's an invitation to the devas that's traditionally done in some of the monasteries where I've spent time. Uh, it's done before doing one of the, any of the paritta chanting. The metta sutta is one of the paritta chants. Uh, I'll say more about that a little later. And we don't have to believe in devas to get some benefit out of a chant like that. It points to the, the really the inclusive nature of, of metta and of this kind of practice. And it's said that devas are drawn to metta and to those who are cultivating and practicing metta. And if there are any of them around, we want them to feel welcome. And I know some of you might have learned this chant, so if you do know it and you would like to join in, that's okay by me. 
Dita va yeva adita ye chadure vasanti avidure Bhuta va sambhave siva Sabe sata bhavantu sukitata Naparo param nikubeta Nati manjeta katachinam kanchi Bhairosana patigasanya Nanya manyasa dukamicheya Matayata niang putang Ayusaeka putam manurake Ewampi sababu tesu Manasambhavayeya parimanam Metancha sabalokasmim Manasambhavayeya parimanam Udam adocha teriyancha Asambaram averam asapatam Ditancharang isinova Sayanova yavatasa vigatamido Etam satim aditeya Brahmametam viharam idamahu Ditincha anupagam asilava Dasanena sampanno Kamesu vineyagedam Nahijatu gabaseyam Punaretiti As I mentioned, the uh, Metta Sutta, Karniya Metta Sutta, is one of what are called the Paritta chants. And uh, the word Paritta is usually translated as protection or blessing. And this, uh, the Sutta was originally taught to a group of monks as a protection. I'll give you a little bit of the history of the Sutta. It's kind of interesting. There was a group of monks in the texts it's said to be 500, which is... Uh, a number often used, it means a lot. Uh, and they went to the Buddha at the start of the rains period, the Vasa, which is a period during, during the rainy season in India, that part of the world. Uh, it's in the summer, late, middle, late summer into fall when it rains a lot, the monsoon season. And the, the ordained Sangha, the monks and nuns, during that time they they determine to stay in one spot and not wander about. And it's usually a period of retreat. It feels like the rains retreat today here. And so they went to the Buddha in, uh, I think he was staying in Savati, 
uh, at that time in northern India, not so far from the mountains. And he taught them meditation according to their individual temperaments, which was a skill the Buddha had. And so all the monks went to the foothills uh, to find a place to spend the rains and to practice. And they found a good place. It was a forest. It said it had clear, good springs of good water. And there were small villages, a number of villages nearby where they could go for their daily alms round. And uh, it said that the locals were delighted to have them and actually offered to build them some huts on the edge of the forest. And so each of the monks selected a tree to practice under uh, by day and night. And these were beautiful big trees in the forest. And it said that they were inhabited by tree devas, kind of celestial being that uses a tree as the, the base for its house. And uh, the devas were respectful. And so they didn't want to be hovering above the monks while they were meditating. So they stood aside out of respect, along with their families, thinking that the monks might be there for a day or two. But then day after day passed, and the monks showed no signs of going away. So these, these devas were like you know, villagers who'd been forced out of their homes by, a, by an, uh, an army or something who'd commandeered their homes. And so they, they decided they would frighten these monks away. And they decided they'd show them frightening objects and sights and emit terrible stenches and awful noises to scare them. And it said that the monks became pale and they could not concentrate, soon lost even their basic mindfulness, and their brains became smothered by these visions, sounds, and tragic smells. So the monks ran back to the Buddha to ask him what to do, and he taught them the Metta Sutta. Karaniya Metta Sutta. And so they learned it and they returned to the forest chanting the sutta and practicing meditating on loving kindness. And it's said that the devas were very pleased and they not only allowed them to stay but cared for them for the period of the rains and made sure the forest stayed quiet and peaceful. And as is often the case with these stories, all 500 of the monks became arahants <laughs> by the end of the rains period. So maybe this will happen here, you know. You never know. One of these days, it's got to happen sometime. So don't rule it out. So metta uh, is also put in the category of one of the ten paramis, which are these ten uh, parami. It's paramita in Sanskrit. It's usually translated as a great perfection or noble quality of heart and mind. And it's said that the Buddha perfected these uh, beautiful qualities over countless lifetimes when he was the bodhisattva, bodhisattva before taking birth as the Buddha. And these are spoken of in the Jataka tales, the Jataka Pitaka. It's a collection of these stories of the lives of the bodhisattva. Often he took birth as an animal and they're like teaching stories, sort of like fables. They're quite lovely, some of them. And so he developed these qualities like patience and uh, generosity and renunciation and metta, one of them. 
over these uh, countless lifetimes. And so it's important, I think, for us to keep in mind that we can develop wholesome, beautiful qualities of mind. We can cultivate and develop these because our hearts and minds are malleable. They're able to change and we can develop these things through our practice because nothing is static in our hearts and our minds. And where we place our mind and our heart really does matter and it has an impact in our lives. This is uh, from the Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, cultivate the good, O monks. One can cultivate what is good. If it were not possible to cultivate the good, I would not ask you to do so. But as it can be done, therefore I say, cultivate the good. If this cultivation of the good would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the good brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate the good. So these things are often addressed to the monks, but it's to us as meditators, it's to all of us as practitioners. So what is this quality of metta? What is loving kindness? You know, it gets translated as universal loving kindness or unconditional love. These terms that sound quite grand sometimes might feel like more than we can really grasp or beyond our capacity. But what metta really points to is a generosity of heart that wishes happiness to all beings both oneself and others. And metta really recognizes a universal wish that all beings share to be happy. I have a quote from the Dalai Lama. He actually takes the wish for happiness a step further. He says, I believe that the very purpose of life is to be happy. From the very core of our being, we desire contentment. In my own limited experience, I have found that the more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating a warm, close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. It helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the principal source of success in life. Since we are not solely material creatures, it is a mistake to place all our hopes for happiness on external development alone. The key is to develop inner peace. So metta is called unconditional love, unconditional friendliness. And it's unconditional because it asks for nothing in return. There are no conditions attached to pure metta. In the Metta Sutta, the Buddha likened the quality of Metta to a mother's love for her child. And I'm sure the parents in the hall can relate to this. And in the Visuddhimagga, there's an image of a mother cow and her newborn calf. It's used to illustrate this. And probably most of us don't spend a lot of time around cows and calves these days unless we happen to live on a farm but I think they were around a lot more in people's lives at the time of the Buddha. So that was an image that, that really people could touch and connect with. 
more directly than most of us can. But I actually had a, an interesting cow and calf experience uh, <laughs> that I'll tell you when I was in, living in Burma. And at that time I was living as a, a monk on a temporary basis. It's possible to do that in Asia quite easily to ordain as a monk or a nun for a, a, sh- a short time, not, not necessarily as a lifetime's vocation. And I was in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills, which are a, a beautiful place near Mandalay, across the river and downstream from Mandalay a bit. It's kind of one of the heart centers of Buddhism in Burma. And the hills are just um, nothing but temples and monasteries and nunneries and pagodas. And uh, I was living in a very small monastery in, in a cave there, actually for a period of a few months. And I would go down into uh, the small village of Wachet on alms round every day to collect food for my meal. And I followed the same route through the the village. And one day I came around a corner and there was a a mother cow and a brand new calf just barely standing and still covered with the afterbirth. And the mother was was cleaning it, giving it a bath. I thought of this image of the mother and mother cow and her calf from the description of metta. It was such a clear, vivid image of that kind of care. In the Visuddhimagga, metta is defined thus. Loving kindness is characterized as, characterized as promoting friendliness and welfare. Its function is to prefer friendliness It is manifested as the removal of ill will. Its proximate cause is seeing lovableness in beings, and its footing is seeing with kindness. It succeeds when it causes ill will to subside, and it fails when it produces selfish affection and desire. So it's described here as having friendliness and the promotion of welfare as its characteristic and function. And there's a simpler way this is stated in the Abhidhamma. It says, and how does a bhikkhu, you could say, how does a meditator, a practitioner, how does a bhikkhu abide with a heart imbued with loving kindness extending over one direction? Just as one would feel friendliness on seeing a dearly beloved person, so one extends loving kindness to all creatures. I think most of us can relate to this feeling of friendliness to someone who's dear to us. There's this natural, spontaneous well-wishing that arises. We can imagine when we see our dear friend, if we see a dear friend coming towards us, we can imagine this easy, spontaneous arising of good feeling, well-wishing. Metta and the other Brahma-viharas that uh, we're talking about in the retreat. Now we're practicing karuna, which is compassion, the second of the mudita, the quality of empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity, are the four Brahma-viharas. Said that they have these both near, what are called the near and far enemies. And the near enemy is something that can look like or feel like in this case, metta, 
masquerades as the real thing and can fool us at times. And this is touched on in the description from the Visuddhimagga, where it's said that metta fails when it produces selfish affection and desire. Because we, we often do equate love with some kind of romantic love. And this is almost always associated with desire. And it usually depends on conditions or on people being a certain way. And so our love in this case can easily become conditional. Not always, but it can easily shade into things like, uh, I will love you if, and you can fill in the blank there, you know, if you love me back, or if you do what I want you to do, if you behave the way I want. So this is the near enemy. It sometimes feels like pure metta, can feel like metta can fool us, but it places these conditions on the love. And this kind of love can sometimes easily shade into what's called the far enemy, which is really the opposite of metta, which is ill will, or in its strongest form, you could say hatred. And some of us might have noticed this pattern in our lives at times, you know, when the object of our affection changes somehow or no longer behaves the way we want them to. And we can see our love turn to some form of annoyance or anger, or even in extreme cases, it can turn to hatred. We see this in the world so often. But pure metta, pure loving kindness doesn't ask for anything in return. It's quite different feeling. This is that unconditional nature. I'm going to look a little bit at the actual words of the sutta. If you have a sheet, you can look at it, but not necessary. And I like this translation. I haven't been able to find out who did this translation. I got it from the Buddhist Peace Fellowship website, but there was no credit given. So it is variously translated. This one seems quite uh, good to me. And there's kind of three parts to the sutta. It's interesting. It's not divided up, but there are three very distinct parts to it. Even though it's presented as a whole thing, a whole sutta. The first part describes qualities which one should both possess at least to some extent and and be cultivating when we undertake this practice. And this section really points to the development of sila, of ethical conduct. And it's really quite a, a large part. It's the first several stanzas. And it points to uh, how much the Buddha emphasized sila as a foundation for our practice, as really a foundation that the practice rests on. And we can see how if we develop a life of non-harming and care, how that really is an essential basis for our practice and and especially so for developing metta. If we're not living a life of care and non-harming, it's much harder to develop these feelings of, of goodwill for all beings. 
And as well, this section points to the life of simplicity and renunciation that the Buddha and his disciples were living at that time. And some of the things in it point directly to the life of an alms mendicant, which is what Theravada monks and nuns are alms mendicants. They're actually monk is kind of a misnomer there means that they're dependent for their daily sustenance on offerings from lay people. So they gather alms. And so they're, they're expected to be contented and easy to support, free of greed for supporters, and simple in their way of living. So these are qualities that are mentioned in the sutta. So this uh, feeling of renunciation that's there in that simplicity of living. And then the second part is the bulk of the discourse and it, it really describes the actual practice and the qualities of heart and mind that are expressed and developed and cultivated with this uh, practice. And it points to the inclusive and boundless nature of metta with this phrase, may all beings be well, secure, and happy, all beings. And it describes a whole bunch of different kinds of beings pointing to this inclusive quality of metta. So visible and invisible beings and those born and those yet to be born, those seeking birth. Whatever living creatures there are without exception It's in this part of the sutta that this image of the mother's love for her child is, is spoken. And the boundless nature of metta is expressed here. It says, for all throughout the cosmos in all its height and depth and breadth. And I love this line, it says, love that is untroubled. That's so beautiful, untroubled love beyond hatred or enmity. And at the end of this, this part it is the uh, inclusion of metta as one of the divine abidings, one of the divine abodes, these Brahma Viharas. It says this is deemed the divine, divine abiding here and now. So when we have cultivated that quality of metta in that moment, in any moment where our heart is imbued with this quality, then that's that divine abiding here and now. It's not so much something that we attain at some later state. And then the last, just the last stanza, kind of the third part has a very different tone from the rest. It really points to the transcendent and liberating potential of the practice, I think, and how it is a practice of purification. It refers to how a pure-hearted one who has clarity of vision and is no longer clinging to wrong views. One who is possessed of right view, right understanding, that such a one is, no, is not born again into the world, freed from the rounds of birth, death, and rebirth from samsaric existence.
And sometimes when we undertake a practice like metta, it might feel as though we're trying to somehow create or get something that that exists somewhere outside us. As though by somehow repeating the phrases and doing the practice, we're going to acquire something that we don't already have. But loving kindness really is not cultivated in this way. With this practice, we highlight and we nurture qualities that already exist within us, within our hearts and minds. We uncover our own inner goodness, sometimes is hidden from us, at least at times it hides. But we're really uncovering qualities of the heart that exist already. I'm going to read a lovely poem that points to this. I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, but it's still very lovely. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. It's by Galway Canal. The bud stands for all things, even those things that don't flower, for everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow, and the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail. From the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the the blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the 14 teats into the 14 mouths sucking and blowing beneath them, the long, perfect loveliness of sow. For those of you who English isn't your first language, a sow is a, a female pig, a mother pig. These beautiful qualities of care and connection that we cultivate with metta practice can have a very powerful and really enlivening effect on our lives. And there's a, Sharon Salzberg is one of the founding teachers here, been a teacher to many of you I know. She has a beautiful book on loving kindness. And there's a, a story in there I'll read, I'd like to read. This was about a a research project that was done in a nursing home. Researchers once gave a plant to every resident of a nursing home. They told half of these elderly people that the plants were theirs to care for, that they had to pay close attention to their plants' needs for water and sunlight, and they had to respond carefully to those needs. And the researchers told the other half of the residents that their plants were theirs to enjoy, but that they did not have to take any responsibility for them, that the nursing staff would care for the plants. 
And at the end of a year, the researchers compared the two groups of elders. The residents who had been asked to care for their plants were living considerably longer than the norm, were actually much healthier, more oriented towards and connected to their world. The other residents who had plants but did not have to stay responsive to them simply reflected the norms for people in people their age in longevity, health, alertness, and engagement with the world. And this study shows really the powerful, the, the potent effect that care and connection can have in our lives. And it also shows how sometimes we can regard this kind of intimacy and love as a force between ourselves and others. And we don't consider so often the possibility that we might discover this kind of intimacy and connection within our own inner life. But when we cultivate metta, we're doing just this. You know, we're connecting to our own inner goodness. And this becomes really the ground, the foundation for connecting to everything around us. Because we see just as we wish to be happy, so too do all other beings, even those whose actions indicate the opposite sometimes. And so through the practice, we connect to the underlying unity of life through this shared desire for happiness. And it's significant in this that we, we begin the metta practice with ourselves. It's really an, an essential foundation in some ways for being able to offer this genuine well-wishing to others. Because when we love ourselves, we see that we want to care for others because, it, because it's so nourishing and enriching in our lives. It's one of the best things we can do for ourselves. But it's not always easy to start with ourselves. I know for myself, I had a hard time connecting to offering metta to myself when I first was practicing it for a long time. One of my s teachers suggested I put myself in the enemy category for a while, <laughs> start somewhere else. <laughs> so sometimes we have to start where it's, we, we have to start where it's easy and then we come and connect with ourselves. So we start where it's more effortless, some being where it, there's a natural arising of this feeling of love and friendliness. And as we practice, loving kindness really does begin to soften the mind and heart with feelings of benevolence. And our hearts can become more open and pliable, gentle. And this really can become the ground for wisdom to arise in our lives, in our minds and hearts, because we can see from that place much more clearly what is skillful and wholesome in our lives and what isn't. And this kind of clear discriminating wisdom can lead us to begin making wiser choices in our lives. And this leads directly to greater happiness and ease. This is a quote from the Buddha in praise of metta, which he praised throughout the suttas in many places. He extolled the virtues and suggested, recommended that people cultivate loving kindness. This is from the Itivataka. 
again speaking to the bhikkhus, he said, bhikkhus, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far excels them. Just as whatever light there is of stars, all is not worth one sixteenth part of the moon's. In shining and beaming and radiance, the moon's light far excels it. And just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn when the heavens are clear, the sun as it climbs the heavens drives all darkness from the sky with its shining and beaming and radiance. And just as when the night is turning to dawn, the morning star is shining and beaming and radiating. So too, whatever kinds of worldly merit there are, all are not worth one sixteenth part of the heart deliverance of loving kindness. In shining and beaming and radiance, the heart deliverance of loving kindness far as excels them. And so by worldly merit here, he means good deeds we might do, acts of generosity in the world, acts of kindness in the world. But he ranks the, the heart deliverance of loving kindness as far exceeding any of these worldly merits. That's high praise, I think. It's said that there are 11 benefits that come to one in whom loving kindness is well developed. So I'll go through these, they're interesting. First three have to do with sleeping. It says that one sleeps easily, sleeps in comfort. One wakes easily. I like the description of this. It says, instead of waking uncomfortably, groaning and yawning, and turning over as others do, one wakes comfortably without contortions, like a lotus opening. <laughs> now, any of you waking up like a lotus opening? <laughs> Maybe once in a while. And then also it says that one has no bad or evil dreams. As we develop metta, loving kindness, and through this develop a greater commitment to non-harming and, and to loving and care in our lives. And as the practice deepens and our lives become through this more simple and clear, really whether we're doing vipassana or metta in any of these practices of developing wisdom and kindness, then we find that we have more and more freedom from fear and resentment and guilt and these kinds of things, this can extend into our sleeping and dreaming and waking. Uh, so we can see how, how the practice could help us to have easier sleeping and waking and dreaming. And another couple of the benefits, it said one is dear to both humans and non-human beings. And we can see how the energy that we extend to the world tends to draw back to it the same kind of energy. And so if we extend metta, then metta tends to return to us, not always, but it enhances the chances for that. And I think, I think of the Dalai Lama as a really great example of someone for who this really seems to be true. I mean, people are so drawn to him and find him kind of irresistible. I read this, uh, an excerpt from a book, uh, 
by someone, a friend of his who was also a journalist. And he asked him in an interview once why so many people found him so irresistible, were so drawn to him. And this is what the Dalai Lama said. I don't think I have especially good qualities. Oh, maybe some small things. I have a positive mind. Sometimes, of course, I get a little irritated. But in my heart, I never blame, never think bad things against anyone. I also try to consider others more. I believe that others are more important than me. Maybe people like me for my good heart. And I think people really are drawn to his good heart. I mean, I think he has an incredibly good heart. And that uh, energy really comes out from him. It really uh, draws back to it, that kind of love that people feel for him so easily. And when we develop metta, this heart of loving kindness, then people feel that they can trust us. And they know that we're not going to harm them. So we become a kind of, almost like a beacon of trustworthiness, a safe haven for others. The next two benefits deal with protection. Said that one is protected by the devas and that external dangers such as fire, weapons, and poisons will not harm one. And we don't have to believe in devas and celestial beings to see how there can be a quality of protection with metta. And it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us because there are the changes, the vicissitudes of life that are really beyond our control and pleasure and pain and gain and loss and all these pairs of worldly conditions are, are beyond our control and will always be with us. So the protection that comes is not something kind of supernatural, but it's really more, I think, how we hold and relate to all of the changes that life brings us. You know, this is really the key, how we relate to life. And the more that we manifest love and care and kindness in the world, the more spaciousness and freedom we're able to bring to all of the changing events of our lives, the good and the bad, and this kind of spacious, kind, open heart and mind are really a great protection because they really allow us much more ease in holding all of the changes and the ups and downs of life. Another benefit of metta is said that one's mind is serene and easily concentrated. And when loving kindness is strong, it really can generate a great sense of peace of mind that can come to us when we're really cultivating metta and it becomes strong. And this feeling has patience and acceptance and kind of spacious tranquility are there also. And this kind of peace of mind allows for a real connection to all of life. And it, we can see that we're not depending so much on the circumstances of life for our happiness. And so when the mind is more peaceful, then there's greater access to serenity and to happiness and joy. These states come more easily. And these are the proximate causes for concentration to arise. It's interesting, happiness and joy are causes for concentration to come, not 
making huge effort necessarily so much. And when concentration is there, then there's more uh, an ability to gather and focus our energy. If our minds are scattered and really distracted with worry and doubts and fears, and we can lose a lot of energy, get scattered out, focused on all kinds of different things. But when our mind is more serene and concentrated, we can reclaim this energy and we can put it to use really for our benefit and, and for healing in our lives. Another benefit of metta, it said, one's face will be radiant and serene. And I think this points to the way that inner beauty can really shine forth. And our inner state really can affect the way we, we look, the way we appear in the world. You know, if we have a lot of anger, it shows in our face and our body language. And the same is true if our hearts are more loving, filled with kindness, then that can show through as well. And again, I'd hold up the Dalai Lama as a lovely example of this. And so many pictures, he just has this beautiful radiant face that seems to be beaming, radiating this beauty. And I think of some of the nuns and monks in the Sagang Hills, the place where I mentioned I had my cave retreat. The abbot of that small monastery just has this beautiful, open, serene countenance. And has a lot of metta for all beings. It just shines out in his looks. And some of the nuns there just are of such a beauty in that way. It comes out. And the last two benefits, it said that one dies peacefully and one is reborn in higher realms, in beautiful realms. And we can see how if the more serenity and peace, the more we're inclined towards love and well-wishing in our hearts, the more that that's present at the time of our death, then the chances for ease and peaceful passing at that time is greatly increased. And in terms of being reborn in higher, higher realms, even if we don't have any connection to other planes of existence, we can really see this in any moment. We can see through the day, in any moment we can be born into a more beautiful heavenly state or into a, a more difficult, more of a hell realm. We go through all of these through the course of the day. So we can look at it in that, in that way. And it's important to keep in mind when we undertake this kind of a practice, and really any kind of meditative practice, that it's, they're all a process of purification. They're all practices of purification. And so they bring up a lot. They bring up everything. And some of it is not always that easy to be with. Some of it's quite painful at times. And a lot of it doesn't feel anything like metta. When we're practicing metta, we often feel everything but metta. I mean, I remember a time 
when I was, for years, I think, when I was, would try to practice metta and, you know, the, the best I could get to was maybe boredom. <laughs> and, and it was down from there, you know, and a lot of really not beautiful states were pretty much what I saw. So we have to bring a lot of patience to this practice and, and to be careful not to judge ourselves if we see a lot that doesn't look or feel like loving kindness. And we can remind ourselves that what we're doing is we're planting seeds by forming these powerful intentions in the mind and that these seeds that we plant will sprout and, and they'll bear fruit and they'll, they'll do this in their own time, in their own season, and we can't know when that will be. It's like that image of the flower, the bud opening. I've been watching these lilies this week and they, they're almost all open now, but there was one of them that opened really slowly over several days. And you can't, you know, if you're impatient and we decide to try to open the flower, give it a little help, we ruin it, we destroy it. We can't, it doesn't work to open the, the bud that way. We have to let it open in its own time. And these practices have that same quality. So it's important to be mindful of any expectations we might have about how the practice should feel. So I'm going to end with a poem that speaks to this process of seeds ripening in their own time and some of the darkness that we have to see on the way to finding metta. poem some of you <clears throat> are probably familiar with. It's called Kindness. It's by a Palestinian-American poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand what you counted, carefully saved. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow and you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, 
only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So we'll just sit quietly for a few moments and then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. There's a period of walking meditation now, and please keep the copies of the Metta Sutta if you like them. And if you don't wish to keep them, you can put them back on the pile under the bulletin board, and I'll use them again sometime. And if you didn't get one and want one, there's some out there, so should be enough for everybody. <laughs> 